0: As we go to God's word, let's pray he would open it to us. Let's pray together. Give you, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your word so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and give us life so that we will call upon your name. And let your face shine on us in Christ so that we might be saved. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I did warn you that it was a grim psalm. Um, If you didn't believe me by the end, I think you believed me. Um, But it captures the spirit of captivity, the grim spirit of being in a foreign land dominated by a foreign people um, in captivity. And that's where our uh, passage reminds us of that time. Uh, that's where it begins. So we're going to read together from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through uh, Matthew's Gospel in the genealogy of Matthew. And we've come to the third sort of chapter in Israel's history that goes from uh, the deportation in Babylon to uh, the, the coming of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 1, and then I'm going to take up our reading at verse 12 and read through that section of the genealogy that we want to cover this morning, Lord willing. Uh, so Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is God's own word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then down to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mithon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, As we've gone through the genealogy, one of the things that we have continued to remark upon is that Matthew has a particular purpose in writing his gospel to show Jesus is the true king. Um, And so everything that Matthew does is with really reference to that reality. Um, And even the genealogy is a story told in three chapters of the royal line. Um, We might say that that first chapter from Abraham to David is the royal line crowned. Um, and then uh, the royal line coming to collapse under David's, son, uh, under David's sons after the glory of David's kingdom coming to ruin and deportation. And then finally, this story of the royal line that's in collapse uh, coming to completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so we, we start in that grim spot that we sang about in Psalm 137 with the deportation in Babylon. That Matthew sees that as the last chapter before the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, In in one sense, it's the toughest of the chapters in this genealogy because so many of these names are totally unfamiliar to us. Um, And they're totally unfamiliar to us because this is the only place they appear in the Bible. Um, Jeconiah is mentioned as the ruin of his kingdom, um, as also he's called Jehoiachin in the Old Testament. But his kingdom comes to ruin. He has a son, Shealtiel, that we're told about in the Old Testament. We're told his name, but we're not told anything about him. Um, And from Abiud to Jacob, um, we don't hear any of these names in the Bible anywhere else than here. Um, And and so we we, we don't know who these people are. Um, The only names on this list that maybe finally come familiar to us are Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Uh, We might finally say, okay, I know them. Um, Maybe we'll spend all our time talking about them. Um, But I think there are some names in this list that we do want to highlight that I think Matthew is highlighting, the names that we do know something about in this list uh, before we come to Jesus and his family. Um, Those names are Jeconiah and Zerubbabel. Uh, We know about both of them from the Old Testament, and I think Matthew has a purpose in highlighting them in the royal line to bring us to the point of Jesus' birth. Because all these names together remind us of that time when the royal line was in collapse and the promise of a new beginning that God made through his prophets. Um, And so we want to think about that royal line in collapse and the promise that God made for restoration. And so we want to think about the names in this list and think about a rejected king. That's the first thing we want to think about. Secondly, about a reversed curse. is the second thing we want to think about. And finally, a restoring Christ. That's what we want to think about from this genealogy, section of the genealogy. A rejected king, a reversed curse, and a restoring Christ. Uh, Jeconiah is the rejected king. Um, he's He's described to us in scripture as the captive king. Um, He is called the captive in 1 Chronicles 3.17. He's the king who was carried away into captivity, in a very real sense, the last king of Judah. Um, He was 18 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for three months, and then he was carried off into captivity. Um, And he was a prisoner in Babylon for 37 years. He's really the last of the kings of the line of David. Um, It was a terrible time for God's people to have their their king carried away. That was also the time that Nebuchadnezzar had come into Jerusalem and taken all the gold out of the temple. He took all the vessels that Solomon had made of gold that were in the temple and he cut them to pieces. And so they carried away God's king and they carried away the glory of the temple. Um, It was a terrible time for the kingdom. Uh, But what made it an especially terrible time was it was a time of false hope. Um, even though the king had been taken and the the temple had been defiled, the temple still stood, Jerusalem still stood, um, and there was word going around that, okay, we've suffered now the punishment of God, but now God will relent. Um, Surely God won't allow us to be destroyed completely. After all, we're such a great people and have done such great things for God. And there were popular preachers going around in those days saying, you know, don't worry, there will be peace. You know, Bad things have happened, but there will be peace. Not all is lost, you know. And they were going around saying this. And this was the environment in which Jeremiah was trying to prophesy the word of the Lord and warning about people who were going around and saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And Jeremiah was trying to push against this, this popular tide of false hope and saying, no, this is... This is not the time to think that God is going to relent. Um, When he carries you away in Babylon, Jeremiah had said, you're going to be there for 70 years. This is not going to be a short captivity. He said, when you go there, build houses, plant gardens, marry and give in marriage, because you're going to be there a long time. This is the curse that God is visiting on us for our covenant breaking. But still this period of false hope continued until true hopelessness was realized um, when Nebuchadnezzar came back and destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, That was under the time that Jeconiah's uncle Zedekiah was ruling. And he thought it would be a great idea to rebel against Babylon. And Babylon said, all right, we've had it with you. And that's when they came back and utterly destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, where they tore down the walls and they tore down the temple and they destroyed the city and they took God's people away into captivity. Uh, that, that's what Psalm 137 was remembering. It was remembering how the Edomites stood around cheering while the Babylonians tore down Jerusalem, and how they stood around cheering and saying, Tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. Um, And and the psalm is remembering in a horrible way the time when Babylon came through and destroyed the people of God and even took their children and and beat them to death against the walls of the city. I mean, that's when the true hopelessness of the situation was realized. The city was destroyed. The people were taken captive. The temple was destroyed. Um, The true hopelessness of the situation finally settled on God's people. Because those were the two great signs that God was with his people. The king and the temple. And when the king and the temple were gone, the true hopelessness of the situation really hit God's people. The situation really was undeniable at that point. That God had removed his blessing from the people and they were experiencing the curses of the covenant. It would have seemed to God's people like everything was falling apart. And that even the promises they had so depended on were failing. Um, And that's captured by the prophecy of Jeremiah as he prophesies against Jeconiah. Uh, Jeremiah 22, 24 through 27. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Right, that's that's a terrible prophecy against the faithlessness of the king. Um, a terrible prophecy that that really communicates to us the extent of the collapse. Of this royal line. Um, now, of course, this is not the story of collapse alone, right? This is the low point. So, if the sermon seems grim, be contented to know that we've arrived at the low point, um, because this ultimately is not the story of captivity and collapse. This is a story of that low point to which God's people were plunged, and how God, in His mercy, called them out of it. Because His covenant promises assure them that His promises would not that His that His curses would not last forever. Even the covenant that had promised cursing for faithlessness had given hope that God's grace and His promise to Abraham still were underneath the people, um, that the promises to David and Abraham would not fail. And there was a reminder of that promise coming, and that's really represented by Zerubbabel. He reminds us of the reversal of the curse. Um, Now, maybe we don't think much about the name Zerubbabel or associate it with uh, the reversal of the curse, but he is the son who comes out of Babylon. Um, And so Jeconiah goes into captivity. There he has Shealtiel, who's also born in captivity. And then Zerubbabel is one who comes out of captivity after the 70 years. Um, His name clearly communicates for us who he is. It just means in Hebrew, born in Babylon. And he was one who was born in Babylon, but came out of there uh, when people of God came out of Babylon under Cyrus, the king of Persia after the 70 years that God had declared of exile, after Daniel prayed the prayer of confession that we considered last week in our evening service, then God relented and caused and moved in the heart of Cyrus to send God's people back to Jerusalem. And that represented for God's people a sign of renewed hopefulness, as one commentator put it, a season of renewed hopefulness where God's people began to think, you know, maybe things are finally turning around for us. Maybe now we're finally returning to the glory that we formerly had. Uh, Maybe the curses are truly being reversed um, and God is remembering his people and his covenant. This is the remnant of people that returned in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. um, And among them was Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Um, And they encountered resistance initially, you might remember, to rebuilding the city, to rebuilding the walls, to rebuilding the temple. Um, But eventually they were able to do that, and they completed the temple around the year 516 BC, almost exactly 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, they, They are able to rebuild the temple. And this is a significant moment in the lives of God's people. Because what did we say? What were the two great symbols of God's presence and his stamp on God's people? Was his temple and his throne. His temple and his king. Those were the two great identifiers that God's people could look to and say, this is how we know that God is ruling amongst us, that God is dwelling amongst us, that we are his people. And so we we can't really understand or grasp the, the glory of that moment when the temple is being rebuilt. Um, and, And for some people, it was a bittersweet time. We're reminded that there were those there who had seen the temple in its former glory and wept that the footprint of the temple was so small compared to the temple that Solomon had built. And there were some people who had never seen the temple and were just so glad that a temple was being rebuilt. They were cheering out and you couldn't tell from the noise who was cheering and who was crying. But it was a wonderful time of renewal for God's people when the temple was being rebuilt and the temple had been reestablished. And what do you think would have been on the minds of God's people after, as they see the temple rebuilt? They must have been thinking, now when is the throne going to be rebuilt? When is the king going to return? When are we once again going to be ruled by a son of David? David. In David's city, on David's throne, um, it, it's it's a question that long has hung with God's people. It's really the same question the disciples asked Jesus right before he ascended. Lord, are he, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, they they've been waiting for the return of the king. The temple's back, but where's the king? That's what God's people would be thinking. Will God now restore the kingdom? Where is the throne? Where is our king? Uh, that was the question they would be asking, and that was the answer that God gave them through the prophet Haggai. Haggai comes with the good news of the reversal of God's curse and the day that's coming when not only the temple but the throne will be restored. Remember how Jeremiah had prophesied against the king. He had brought the word of the Lord saying, were you a signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. That was the word of of curse that came from Jeremiah. But now with that in mind, with that signet ring analogy in mind, listen to what Haggai says in chapter two, verses 21 to 23 to Zerubbabel. The Lord says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There's the promise of the the curse being reversed, the signet ring that was torn off and cast off at Jeconiah's time. Now God comes and says, I'm going to make you my signet ring and put you on my finger. Uh, Now we don't use signet rings much anymore. Um, at all, Um, any much (laughs) at all, Um, you know, we don't don't use these rings. And so maybe the importance of it would not strike us. But this was, you know, the most important thing you had. This was how you made your mark, how you signed a document, how you stamped something as official. That's why people would wear them on a chain around their neck and keep close watch of them. Because if you lost them, someone else could make marks in your name. It was the way you left An impression. And so it's a beautiful way of the Lord saying that the king of Judah is like a signet ring on my hand. It's how I make my mark on the world. It's how I leave my impression. It's how I seal things as true. That's why it was an awful thing for that ring to be torn off. And that's why it's a wonderful thing that God promises that Zerubbabel will be made like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Of hosts. It's a reminder to us that that Zerubbabel was everything that Jeconiah was not. Zerubbabel was a faithful servant of the Lord. He did what he was told to do, he rebuilt the temple. Um, He was a faithful governor in Judah, and the Lord remarked on that faithfulness, saying that he was the one who he would take and make his signet ring and choose him for himself. Um, He was everything that Jeconiah was not. Um, He is not a king, but he is a servant of the Lord. Um, And and what this reminds us is it's better to be a king, it's better to be a servant of the Lord than it is to be a king who doesn't serve him. Um, Better the governor of Judah in this time, which was not a prestigious position. At this time in the world's eyes, he was a minor government official in a backwater province, the inheritor of a cast-off royal line. That's how one commentator described him. But he was also a servant of the Lord. And what good is it to be king of Judah in chains in Babylon? What what good is it to be the king if you're not a servant of the Lord? Zerubbabel is everything that Jeconiah wasn't. And he's the servant the Lord has chosen for himself. And the good news that Haggai prophesied that comes to, Jer- to Zerubbabel is not just that this, this new era will change everything for Israel, it'll change everything for the world. It'll change everything for creation. The whole world is going to be shaken into a new order. Uh, that's, that, that was the promise of what he prophesied. Right? The, the heavens and the earth will be shaken. Um, the kingdoms will be overthrown. This is God's way of saying the whole world is about to go in exile. Um, and, and my kingdom is to be established everywhere. Right? It's like the vision that Daniel saw of that big rock that destroys all the kingdoms of the earth and then grows into a huge mountain that, that fills the earth. There's a wonderful prophecy coming that this kingdom is going to overthrow all kingdoms and establish one kingdom of God under his servant. Um, It's a wonderful promise, the reestablishment of the throne of David to greater glory than it ever had even under, under David. And so Haggai communicates this promise, adds to the other promises God had made to another promise. Right, so now we have a promise to, to Abraham and a promise to David and a promise to Zerubbabel, um, a king who would rule and who would reign, and it will happen, Haggai says, on that day. And of course, when you say that, it immediately prompts everybody to ask, on what day? Right, because as far you know, none of us, until I remind you, probably most of us don't remember who Zerubbabel was. We need reminding. Um, Haggai too is not on the tips of our tongues, generally speaking. Right? We need help reminding ourselves of these things, reminding ourselves of these realities. And that seems to indicate to us that Zerubbabel didn't shake the heavens and the earth. Or maybe we had remembered him. Um, that, that where is this promise fulfilled? When will the kingdom be restored? And it's certainly not under Zerubbabel, this promise is in the picture of Zerubbabel giving us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great restorer who comes into the world. He is the one who at his coming will shake the heavens and the earth, who will establish his kingdom and destroy the other kingdoms. Um, And God's people have to wait for that day. And they wait a long time for that day. Right, Hundreds of years, they're waiting for that day to come. Um, and we go through all those generations of people we don't know from Abiud until we get to Joseph, and they're still waiting for that rest- restoration to come. But finally, the restoring Christ comes. Right, we, we read about that, and, and it's so simply stated by Matthew, this glorious moment in the life of God's people Um, So all the generations come to an end and Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. He is that anointed one. He is that Messiah. He is that one who will come and restore all that was broken, who will restore the kingdom to Israel, who will shake the heavens and the earth until he makes everything into a new order into a place where, a kingdom where only righteousness dwells. Um, Is that how we think of of Christmas? As being a shaking of the world, a shaking of the heavens and the earth, a whole new order being ushered in. Um, Does that seem to happen when Jesus comes? I mean, this is a promise that will shake the heavens and the earth. It doesn't really even shake Bethlehem that much. Right? There is some talk in the streets about shepherds who come having seen angels and testifying that the angels told them that this child was the Christ. Um, but would would Bethlehem have noticed that the whole heavens and the earth were shaken at the coming of Jesus? It seems like that's kind of why Christmas is popular with all of its religious trappings, even with people who aren't particularly religious, because the baby in the manger is, doesn't ask you anything. He doesn't really demand anything of you. I mean, after all, who doesn't like babies? right? That's something we can get behind. It's Jesus, meek and mild, an infant lowly in the manger. He's not really asking anything of us. He doesn't demand anything of us. It's a nice story, um, it did really shake the heavens and the earth. His coming, um, and there too is where we can learn from Zerubbabel and from the times that were prophesied about him. The, the Zachariah prophesied that the Zechariah prophesied that Zerubbabel would come and rebuild the temple, and he said, "You know, and when he starts, don't don't despise the day of small things." You know, there would be people who would see that work just beginning. And maybe who, you know, saw the stakes in the ground around where the foundation of the temple would be laid. And looked at it and said, that little footprint, that's going to be the glorious temple of God's people. And you know, Zechariah had to prophesy in the name of the Lord, "Don't, don't despise the day of small things. Because that that little that little foundation laying will become a foundation and that foundation will become a house and the word of the Lord will be fulfilled and in that day Zachariah said, you'll know that that work did not come about um, except by the spirit of God we read those wonderful words right not by might not by power but by my spirit says the Lord how do these little things that begun be, that are beginning become big things by the Spirit of the Lord and the work of the servant of the Lord. And the, the Bible reminds us, don't despise the day of small things. It might not have seemed a big event that Jesus came into the world. It might not have seemed to the world to be that event, but it was the day of the beginning of small things. It was the laying of the foundation of the glorious work of the Lord. Right? Because Jesus would would grow. And he would grow into the king. He would grow into the Savior of the world who would go and lay down his life on the cross for sinners. Um, That he would he would build up the temple. Remember, that's even how he talked about himself, that he was the true temple. And he told them, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they laughed at him and they looked at the glorious temple they had and they said, oh, that took years to build. You're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? And we have to be told the temple that he was talking about was his body. Here is the one who is the true king and the true temple. And he lays down his life unto destruction for the sins of his people. He becomes the covenant curse for us. Not so that he might be destroyed, but so that he might rebuild. Because he comes out of the ground after he died. And we think about his death didn't his death shake the heavens and the earth? The ground shook at his death, the rocks split, the dead rose, the heavens were shaken, the sun stopped shining. The heavens and the earth shook at the death of the Son of God. And then he laid down his life and then he took it up again. And that was a small beginning. One resurrected man in resurrected glory. But it promises a huge beginning. It was the beginning of the harvest that would go to all the sons and daughters of God. Who would rise on account of what he had done. And he's, he's, he's raised from the dead by his father and he's crowned with glory and honor. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why it was a silly question for the disciples to ask Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom has been restored. The kingdom has been rebuilt. And Jesus is ascending into heaven to reign not on Jerusalem's throne, but on heaven's throne for his people. And what Zerubbabel reminds us of is don't despise the day of small things because they become big things. And the same is true as we think about Christmas. That when Jesus came once into the world, he came to deal with sin and he's coming again into the world with glory to do what? To shake the heavens and the earth. To to rule out all the kingdoms of this world where so much evil is still done, and to establish one kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, where righteousness dwells and where no unclean thing enters in and where there's only life and health and peace and joy and glory forevermore. And so when we look at the small beginning that Christmas represents, let's not despise the day of small things. And just because he came once, let's not despair of his coming again. Because he's promised he's coming again soon. Um, And when he comes again, he'll make all things new. And all those who put their faith and trust in him don't need to worry about that coming. Don't need to fear the king who's coming again. That might be initially kind of scary to think about, boys and girls, to think about the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Um, maybe sometimes the way the Bible talks about Jesus coming again should, should, frightens us, but we shouldn't be frightened because he, he came once to deal with our sins. And he's coming not again as our judge, but as our savior. Savior. He's already dealt with our sins if we put our faith and trust in him. For us, when he comes and shakes the heavens and the earth, that will be a great day. It will be a glorious day. It will mean that all the things that we've hoped for are coming true. All the things we're waiting for are realized. All the peace that we can't find in this world will have found. Um, all the wholeness we can't find in this world will have found. All the health we can't find in this world will have found. And he will do it by shaking it all into a new order. And so there's nothing to be afraid of on that day if you belong to him. It'll be the day he sets the captives free. and That he ushers in a kingdom of such glory that we can't even conceive in our hearts or imagine what kind of day that will be. Uh, So when we think of that little child coming in a manger, don't forget that that was just the beginning of the kingdom he would bring and that he's surely coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, to set the captives free, to bring the prisoners home. I hope you believe in that, Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him and you're part of his kingdom. And you'll be part of that glory when the king comes again. For blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder in your word of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he represents the the restoration that your people were hoping for And while we still are longing for his second coming, let's help us, Lord, not to despise the day of small things, to remember to give thanks for the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world, to humble himself as a servant even to death on the cross. And may we rejoice that you've raised him to glory and seated him at your right hand, uh, far above all rulers and powers and authorities. We thank you that he's reigning, that he ever lives to intercede for your people, and that he's surely coming again soon in glory. And so all your people say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That is the prayer of this Christmas and every day of our hearts and minds, that we long for the coming of the King, and for the restoration of the kingdom that he will bring with him. And we thank you that even now we are part of that kingdom, citizens of that kingdom that is now in heaven, And one day we'll rule in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll be there with him forever and we will see his glory even as he promised. So we pray that he would come quickly and that you would find us faithful at his coming. May we all put our faith and trust in him. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.